Hi, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Is it Chag Sameach? Do we do that? I think we do. I, I think we do. I mean, I was going to, you know, open up by talking about Lagba Omer bonfires and the whole thing about how we don't do bonfires anymore because it's not good for the environment. So it's actually Lagba Omer non-bonfires. But forget all that because the Israeli coalition is sort of going up in flames. So maybe that should be the thing to talk about. It's very nice of them, by the way, to be doing this, having this political drama half an hour before we were recording our podcast and not half an hour after. So I just say that's very considerate. But normally we get news breaking um, straight after we hang up our microphone. So this is helpful. Um, This thing about Lagba Omer, by the way, no bonfire. I'm afraid that memo has not reached uh, Uh, Orthodox neighbours. (laughs) Hackney in North London still goes with the classic Lagba Omer, uh, which is a festival. Well, at least you get toasted marshmallows, my friend. So that's nice. So instead of we... fires, what, what are you, besides political fires, what, besides, what, instead <laughs> of fires, what, 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 what's taken their place in the Israeli non-hackney Lagba Omer? So what they do is actually they turned it into a, a completely uh, on its end. It's a water festival now. So kids go and they have like water balloons and they play with water because obviously at this point, in Israel, uh, it's already very, very hot, so you can yeah. do that. And it's instead of the fact that, you know, it's not good for uh, the environment. So they kind of stopped it, doing that over the over recent There's still a little bit of bonfires, but not that many. You know, here, obviously, Hackney, it's a scorched earth festival, so that continues. But <laughs> suitable that it will be water, Chag Maim, not only suitable because uh, it's hot weather where you are, but also our guest, the host of Jeopardy, I think the most uh, popular and long, longest running TV quiz show in America, Maim Bialik, as well as she, I mean, she's an actor, director, writer, the whole lot. We'll be talking to her later. See how that all ties up very nicely? You did notice that, that little Hebrew linkage. That was link very nice what there. you just did. That was very elegant, my friend. I was quite very pleased. Nice. <laughs> I was quite pleased with that. Anyway, we have a very lovely conversation with Mayim Bialik, uh, Hollywood star, coming later. But as you said, and we've got to avoid the sort of potential risk of Groundhog Day here because we have brought hot foot news of coalition unraveling before. But go on, what's happened this time? Mm-hmm. Well, this time it's not coming from the right, but it's coming from the left. And this time it's Raida Rinawi Zoabi. She's a member of uh, Meretz, an Arab-Israeli, who basically said, I can't deal with the fact that this coalition is walking too much to the right. I saw the pictures in Al-Aqsa Mosque. I saw the pictures of uh, Shirin uh, Abu Akleh's uh, funeral. We will get to that later in our program. I can't uh, deal with this government anymore. I have to resign. Now, first of all, I have to tell you, Jonathan, I'm sure you remember that when Edith Silman uh, from Prime Minister Bennett's party, Yamina, uh, resigned, it was a phone call to Bennett that let him know that our correspondent Amit Segal broke the story. This time it was our correspondent Mohammed Benjadla who broke the story. And again, the notification surprised Bennett himself, Lapid, the alternate prime minister, and of course the head of her own party, Nitzan Horowitz, who have uh, since then been trying to get her on the phone, the phone and not succeeding. This is a big deal because if Edith Silman left the coalition at a 60-60, uh, uh, this, this uh, leaves the coalition as a minority government. And theoretically, if uh, the Likud puts forth a, uh, a law to uh, submits a law to dissolve a parliament, it can actually happen if she votes. Uh, yes, she didn't say if she would or not yet, but this is the option. What it looks like, Jonathan, really, uh, in all honesty, is that everything is is 
seriously falling apart. If I am Bennett right now, what I'm thinking is, let me make sure that when this falls apart, I am indeed the transitional prime minister and not yet your Lapid. Like that is what is supposed to be going through his mind right now. Because incumbency is always an advantage in these yes, and matters. I remember when we first talked about this um, government, it was as if it was like a sort of improbable flying machine, this contraption that nobody ever thought would get airborne. And we've now had a, a bits falling off before from the right wing of the plane. Now bits are falling off the left wing of the plane. Very, very hard to keep flying. I just wondered about your point, though, because it struck me more of a blow the 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 idiot Slimane defection because it was really plausible since she was a right winger that she might vote with Likud to bring down mm -hmm. the government and hasten elections. Am I wrong to think it is less likely that, uh, as you said, Palestinian citizen of Israel, member of the left wing Meretz party, is going to go into? I'm using a Westminster image here. The voting lobbies with Netanyahu and Co. That feels less likely to me. Well, first of all, you have the also the joint Arab list in opposition. Uh, the United Arab list is inside the coalition. So um, so that's a question what you will do. Uh, you're right in thinking that the Edith Sidman was really putting the whole coalition in danger because what we thought that would be the follow-up in the next couple of days would be more uh, uh, members from Yamina uh, walking out. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, the Bennett people like to say the bleeding has stopped. But now that it's coming from the left side, it just sends this signal to everyone that this is a very unstable ship. And the notion that we kind of brought up and then uh, shot down of Netanyahu himself managing to form a coalition in this Knesset and not going to election begins to look like a probable, uh, more of a probable situation. I still think that the likelihood is of an election, but that is interesting. I remind you of what I said last time, and I know you listen in closely. The fact that you now have someone from the left block of this coalition, if she indeed votes to dissolve parliament, then Naftali Bennett stays in his role as a transitional prime minister that could last for months and months, right until there's an election and maybe another coalition. What Lapid wanted was the other scenario. Right, for someone from his from the other block to vote, and then he would become prime minister. I know it's very complicated. I'm sorry about this, ladies and gentlemen, but this is where we are right now. It is funny that this competition between the two of them to be the prime minister of a collapsing coalition, it is like you know, a wrestling match to be captain of the Titanic as the iceberg gets nearer. You know, I mentioned the incumbency advantage, but isn't there something negative, detrimental uh, for your own standing to be you know, presiding over the, on the bridge of the ship as it is sinking? Well, let, let's say this. I remind you that Netanyahu himself was head of a transition government for more than a year because there was an election and then another election. No one could form a government. But that so feels different from a coalition unraveling in real time and being the guy who everyone's defecting well, maybe, from. Maybe, but if you're Yair Lapid and you're looking at the, the political scene and looking at demography and saying, maybe, maybe, my best chance here is to become this caretaker, head of a caretaker government and keeping this as stable as possible for a few months. Maybe I come into these elections as this uh, transitional uh, prime minister. Maybe he has a better chance. Uh, it is. Look, there are a lot of questions in the air right now. Uh, it could be that in two hours she's going to come back. Reda Rinawi Zoab is going to say, you know what, I, I'm, I am quitting, but I didn't say I would vote to dissolve parliament. And then it stays alive for another couple of weeks. But yeah. I still think that we're going, that I should get my uh, white jacket ready for the election night broadcast because that is where we are heading. Yeah, now that is getting a lot of wear, that outfit, in recent years. Hey, I switch jackets every election cycle. 
Um, let's go to the substance of this, though, yes, and why um, Gaida Zawabi decided to quit. And mm-hmm. in her resignation letter, she mentioned that she had had high hopes that this Arab-Jewish coalition, you know, a, a coalition with Arabs and Jews working together, might lead to a new path of equality and respect. But she'd been disappointed that instead it had taken these hawkish, hardline and right-wing positions. And she specifically cited the violence, as you said, in Jerusalem, but also um, at the Temple Mount, but also the funeral of Al Jazeera's uh, correspondent, Shireen Abu Akleh. Those scenes uh, at the funeral in which uh, Israeli police were beating mourners to the point where they were actually clubbing the coffin itself, those images went around the world. They're still reverberating. It obviously drove this politician out of the coalition, but I think it drove a whole lot of other people around the world either into, uh, you know, if they were already opponents of Israel, into a new degree of intensity of feeling. But it's also drove, as I've often talked about on this podcast, supporters of Israel outside Israel into a kind of despair because it just looked absolutely appalling. Yeah, I, I, I can't argue with uh, one um, one thing that you said in that uh, intro into the story. It was appalling. It was horrific. I think every Israeli looking at it was appalled as well. Um, just kind of to set the stage for this part of our conversation, I'll bring in two quotes that I, I sort of were uh, in my head when I was trying to understand what in the world happened, right, to make the Israeli police force act the way it did. And I will get into the details of, of what happened there in a minute. But first of all, there's that. Uh, I, I know it's attributed to Napoleon, right? That he says, never attribute to malice that which is better explained by incompetence. So this was gross incompetence before anything else. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. First of all, the police commissioner, right, that, that is the responsible, the Jerusalem district police chief, Doron Turgeman. Where do you think he was while all this was going on? I don't know. Go on. He was in a working visit in Germany. Hmm. When the most potentially volatile event in Israel was going on, he was in Germany in a work visit, which you obviously can cut short and come back. His deputy was not uh, the one to give the order, but rather his deputy, who is lower, obviously lower down in the chain of command, was the one to give the order to charge with batons into the uh, procession. Okay, first of all, which is... You listen to that and you're like, wait a minute. I mean, was anyone thinking here? Was there any discussion about what the repercussions of something like this can be? You know, and that is what you keep thinking. By the way, we are now recording this on a Thursday. This happened on last Friday. No one from the chain of command has agreed to come on Israeli television. I'm not talking about Al Jazeera on Israeli television to explain this this chain of events. Right now, what is and have there been calls for the resignation of the police commissioner who was in Germany, or the deputy, or the one who actually gave? There the have order? been. There haven't been vocal. I think, uh, uh, to be honest, and what the, everyone is waiting for is the police to put out their report, and then they also say we will give interviews when after the report is out. I, I'm, I'm reminding you that what they are saying because there was some sort of violence there and there were throwing of rocks and throwing of bottles and they thought that it was 
going to bother the procession itself. That's why they intervened. Nothing can excuse these pictures, but that was their uh, official note. We should know two things about the uh, Jerusalem uh, police. One is that they have been accused of the, in the past of, of using excessive violence in, in protests of, uh, that Haredim had in Jerusalem, that people had, that leftists against Netanyahu had in, in Jerusalem and against Palestinians in Jerusalem. That has been an accusation. Another thing, just to sort of put on a little bit of a, a, a different position here, is that for these weeks of tension in Al-Aqsa Mosque, they did kind of handle it in a, in a way that contained it. Again, nothing can excuse these pictures, and especially if Israel is still in a position, we know it hasn't been yet proved that Israel is responsible for this. Again, if it did happen by an Israeli bullet, it was a mistake. Nobody targeted her on purpose, but we don't know. And Israel is still in the position of, you know, so many people in the world thinking that they're, we are to blame for this, and then this comes I mean, you know. I mean, you're, you're right to mention the reputation of the police there as not being good to start with. To me, that means all the more reason why someone at the political level, at the political echelon, the prime minister, or, you know, if not Naftali Bennett, then Yair Lapid, particularly as foreign minister, to think, you know what, even if I don't expect them to be morally concerned about this, just in the matter of public diplomacy and image making. Let's be sort of hard-headed about this and not imagine uh, an overly, you know, idealistic that we would hope that moral uh, considerations matter. Let's say we put those to one side. How is it that the foreign minister or prime minister do not think the optics of this moment are going to really matter? And put in a phone call to the police chief going, I know your normal style, because that's, you know, Mm. you've got a bit of a reputation. Today is not the day to do that. And even if there's a few stones, you know, you're going to have to let that slide. I do not understand how Israel, a sophisticated country, has not woken up to the importance of that aspect of public diplomacy. You know, you and I have talked often about the image-making brilliance of Volodymyr Zelensky. He has got, you know, a water fight, and yet you can tell somebody in his office is thinking about every possible image, including you know, trivially, how Ukraine conducts itself at the Eurovision Song Contest. You know, they, they're constantly thinking, how do we look to the outside world? How is it that, that somebody in the political office of the prime minister didn't think, let me make that call? Well, uh, first of all, um, we began our program by talking about uh, equating um, Bennett's government to the Titanic. So right now, I think the bandwidth is that we need to survive politically above all else. But this um, is about is, partly about political someone, survival. Look did at someone why she, make, Zawabi uh, has left. Yes, uh, of course. But did someone make that call? I would probably point out that Friday was also the day that that Bennett's closest advisor, Shimrit Meir, quit. Um, so I think the maybe this is just a guess here, right? But maybe the person who would have been making that call wasn't there. Um, and forget the prime minister's office. How about the police commissioner and the call that should have been made? Like there are so many um, mishaps here on the way. And as you said, as Israel is already suspected from the get-go in this in this story, which is that suspected of the killing of uh, Shirin Abu Akle, again, not yet proven, but Israel is the, the constantly accused. It doesn't need the proof. It really could not look any worse. And you, I, I had to sort of my... my Mind was racing to uh, historian Robert Conquest's quote about how, what was it, the behavior of uh, any large bureaucratic organization can best be explained by assuming it's controlled by a cabal of its enemies. I mean, that is exactly what it looked like, right? I no, mean, that's, 
That's a brilliant um, example of that um, aphorism, absolutely is. Um, I was thinking of a very good book by uh, journalist David Patrakarikos, who wrote a book called War in 140 Characters. This was just before Twitter raised the limit to 280. <laughs> but he made the point that these days, wars are only partly fought on the battlefield. They are now wars of information and wars of narrative. And this is, as, as I say, Zelensky has realised this. I think the Russians realise it in their own way. Yeah. It, it's amazing to me that the high-tech startup nation of its own you know, national mythology has not realised this is the most important. It's not even like a sort of side consideration. As I said, in something like policing an event like that, you know, few stones is of secondary importance yep. to the images. And these are now almost sort of security considerations. And it's incredible to me. Uh, even actually, that I'm, I'm, I'm astonished that the police commissioner, had, there aren't demands for uh, the commissioner to resign. I think in, in other places there would be. As I say, not just for the moral outrage of clubbing a coffin containing a dead woman, but for not thinking about what that would do uh, internationally. We said that we were always going to talk about that and um, we were always going to talk about the the next thing on our sort of uh, agenda here, which is this mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, uh, 10 African-American people shot dead um, in a grocery store in that city, the Alleged shooter, the suspect, uh, had posted online a 180-page screed, um, uh, you know, explaining his rationale. The, the, the reason why I thought we should talk about it is, I don't want to credit it with a, with, rationale is almost too too flattering a word, mm -hmm. but he obviously had been uh, marinating in um, great replacement theory, this notion not wholly new, um, actually has a, quite a long history on the right, that white people are being replaced by uh, people of colour, by Muslims, by immigrants, and that this replacing isn't just demographic uh, uh, dynamics taking their course, but is actually deliberate. And who are the replacers? Who's actually pulling the strings and organising this thing? Take a wild guess. <laughs> 29 pages of the manifesto say it's the Jews who are doing it. So this is an interesting moment where this man shot black people, but his hatred, his loathing, is shared mm -hmm. and directed also at, and, and with an instrumental role, at Jews. Same reasons, right? Jews are these uh, demonic figures who have the power over. Like, what's always amazing to me about this, if you're trying to find any kind of logic, is that what? The, the, you're trying to make people, of, you know, who are black or brown, they don't have any agency? Like, someone has to do this for them? I mean, it's just so many things about it is are so uh, really ridiculous. But, I mean, when you think about it, there was a, I think it was an uh, analysis in the University of Chicago, analyzed the people who were arrested after uh, the insurrection in January. And the amazing thing is they, they didn't see any correlation between if they lived in a, in a red district or a blue district. Actually, I think it was like 50 plus percent that lived in blue districts. What was uh, common to all of them is that they lived in areas where the Caucasians were becoming a minority. And that scared them to the what the explanation of that analysis was. They scared them to the extent that they would do what they did on on uh, uh, January sixth. Look, this is really a scary theory, and the scary thing about it, as you said, it isn't new. There have been all kinds of uh, incarnations of it. 
But the thing is that it's becoming more and more mainstream. Like the people, you know, and we know of television personalities who are using this as as their sort of um, creed. That is the scary thing about it in, in the United States. Yeah. To me, I'm watching it from the outside, but it is frightening. No, and um, you mentioned um, TV personalities in the frame all week has been Tucker Carlson mm -hmm. um, of Fox News, who has said, quoting, uh, liberals are, quote, trying to replace the current electorate with new, more obedient voters from the third world. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is replacement theory right there. Mm -hmm. There's this tiny wrinkle of difference, which is uh, he and Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and others, they talk about replacement as a kind of electoral process of voters being replaced by other groups of voters. But actually, that is just a hair's breadth away from the you know, white genocide mm -hmm. narrative, which is we as people are being replaced. And and the and I think the first time a lot of uh, Jewish people woke up to this uh, was in 2017 in Charlottesville, mm -hmm. when those uh, ultra-right protesters marched along sing, uh, chanting. And I remember having to replay the video to be sure I'd heard yeah. it right, but they were chanting, Jews will not replace us. Yeah. And at, at the time, it was odd because of how they were using the word replace um, what, did they suddenly think they were going to be, America was going to be 350 million Jews? No, they thought that Jews were sort of hovering over the country, like moving pieces on a chessboard, say taking white pieces off the board yeah. and putting black and Muslim pieces on. Um, it's classic uh, anti-Semitism. It's a conspiracy theory which casts Jews as both malign and all-powerful. Mm. And as you say, the frightening thing is not that it exists, we already knew that, but that it is not confined to just crazy so-called lone wolf shooters no um it's becoming mainstream i saw a poll that said over half or around half of republicans now believe some form of great replacement theory i mean this is a mainstream view and all the more alarming Staying with America, yes. we have a big topic there because they to get into. There were mid, well, not midterm. There were primary yes. elections this week. They're rolling on all the time, but there was a, a whole sort of batch of uh, a slew of results um, in America. You know, a lot of attention on the battle of Doctor Oz's attempt to run TV Doctor to run for to get the Senate uh, nomination of the Republican Party in Pennsylvania. There's been a few. But a, a, a subplot uh, in the whole season of primary contests, which I think will, uh, you know, is bound to interest us, is APAC. And it's um, ditching a policy before of sort of uh, of neutrality or not getting involved directly in political contests. They have put that to one side. They've put together a big PAC, uh, Political Action Committee, United Dem Democracy Project, a super PAC, which enables them to spend big money. And they've been spending it in democratic primaries, meaning the party contest to choose their own candidate to go head-to-head -head in the general elections uh, for Senate and congressional seats in the autumn. Uh, they've spent up close to $3 million, $2.7 million, on just one candidate alone, uh, which was Steve Irwin, who was seeking uh, to beat Summer Lee, both Democrats, in their primary race uh, in Pennsylvania's 12th congressional district. But there are a whole lot of them. They were on the losing side with that one. They spent all this money, and in the end, Lee beat Irwin by 600 votes. Um, it's essentially go going for the candidate, backing you know, and spending money on the candidate who they think is going to be a more reliable 
friend of Israel. Uh, they did this in North Carolina, Valerie Fauci, or Fushi, I'm not sure how you say her name, uh, in different contests in North Carolina, in other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Davis, also in North Carolina, they backed him. He did win. I mean, it's a big departure for APAC, who didn't used to do this stuff. Yeah, you know, uh, what's interesting, I open, I'm on the mailing list of APAC and J Street. So I opened my email box today and I got an email from J Street that said, we took on APAC's million and one, exclamation mark, with uh, referring, of course, to the Pennsylvania race. And I thought to myself with a sad smile, two Jewish organizations fighting each other, predictable, yes. Sad also, yes. Uh, If you were true Jews, by the way, you'd start a third group, and then you, <laughs> APAC and J-Strat would boy, boycott both of them. Look, first of all, you're right to point out that in December, uh, APAC decided to change course and uh, uh, set up a PAC and a super PAC. Uh, and for the first time, that means that they can directly support um, candidates. By the way, Democrats and Republicans, uh, who they uh, believe are uh, pro-Israel and should receive uh, their support. I saw in one of the newspapers a uh, a title that said APAC secretly pouring in millions. And I said to myself, hmm, it's not such a secret. These are public yeah. uh, filings. But, um, but that is the issue. Look, I think we kind of need to zoom out and ask ourselves what really is happening here. Now, obviously, APAC... Uh, most prominent pro-lobby, uh, pro-Israel lobby in Congress will be 60 near, next year, and even its detractors will probably admit that it was its contribution in fortifying the relationship between Israel and the United States and Israel's security uh, was was important. Uh, they also, of course, believe that it was good and important for the uh, United States, and many other lobbying groups have yes, yet emu- since then emulated their tactics. Now, what happened to APEC, Jonathan? I mean, they will say we're a bipartisan organization, we're not going to officially intervene in whatever Israel decides. We support the Israeli government because it is the Israeli government. That all maybe made sense 20 or 30 years ago. But you were living in a political climate in which, first of all, there's no such thing as a bipartisan issue anymore, let's let's be honest, in the United States. And Israel is no no longer a consensus that it used to be. I can argue that maybe in the 80s it wasn't a consensus by both parties and there, the problem came from the Republicans and not necessarily the Democrats. But the issue is that Israel itself has been moving more to the right in the past 13 years. APAC has been seen as been moving uh, to, to the right and been accused by many of its detractors as being, you know, an arm for the Republican Party and aligned with the Likud and with Netanyahu, where the height of that was, of course, 2015, where APAC was dragged by Netanyahu to oppose Obama over the Iran deal and lost. By the way, reminding you, the same APAC that Sheldon Edelson pulled his check from, a huge check, in 2008 because APAC supported Again, the Israeli prime minister then Olmert over his negotiations with the Palestinians uh, in Annapolis. So on the other end, you have obviously, stop me with this becoming boring, J Street, which is a smaller organization and younger organization set up in 2007 saying something else. Where They're saying we're actively supporting the two-state solution. We're actively supporting and even pressuring the Israeli government to make what we think is the right decision for Israel to end the occupation, actively also supporting certain people who are very vocally against the Israeli government because that's what we think is the right thing to do. And again, this is bringing us to a situation in which these two organizations can sit on both sides of this of this story in, in Pennsylvania. And we're going to see a lot more of this uh, happening, uh, for sure. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to say the roots of this are not shallow. I mean, this change has been coming for quite some time. Um, to me, a big moment, I mean, you know, partly it's just sort of organic, and you're right, the American politics has become so much more polarised, 
And therefore, the idea of having a bipartisan issue, there are just so few of them. Bipartisanship is a kind of dead letter Mm -hmm. in today's Washington. I take all of that. We should not omit, though, from that picture, those actions that were taken by Israel and its leaders directly. And I'm thinking particularly of Netanyahu, who really one of the hallmarks of his prime ministership was shifting um, the the, the dial on Israel so that it became ever more political and partisan, Mm -hmm. famously accepting the invitation from John Boehner to address a Republican-led Congress and not even have a meeting with Barack Obama. You mean setting up the invitation from John Boehner to invite him to Congress? Yes, I mean, exactly, exactly right. He he generated the whole thing. Um, Absolutely right to to mention that. Uh, You know, deciding I'm going to double down on making this a Republican issue versus Democrats, I'm siding with the Republicans to the point where it became quite difficult to be a Democrat and to be pro-Israel because clearly the Israel guy is on the other side. He's batting for the other team, mm-hmm. um, supporting uh, Republican candidates. I think he you know, was at an event for Romney in 2012 against Obama and so on. So therefore, no wonder, it didn't just happen by accident, in other words, that Israel stopped being a bipartisan issue. But Netanyahu's own actions played a role in that. This, though, it seems to me to be a notch further because APAC is getting stuck into internal partisan fights, battles within the mm-hmm. Democratic Party. They are clearly so fearful of anyone joining the ranks of the squad, so-called. They ended up with this case that are very often very progressive candidates, people of colour. I, I, I know APAC also backed people who are women of colour as well, progressive. Mm-hmm. But this joint, you know, doing what they can to stop there being another AOC or Ilhan Omer but isn't in that, Congress. I'm, I'm, I'm that not seems to me the, a new... Right. I'm not so trying to be their advocate in any way. I'm just asking, is that how politics work? I mean, definitely the, the fact that they have decided to set up a pack and put in money, that means they're in the kitchen and they should stand the heat. And if there's criticism and they and they deserve it, then, then they're going to get it and they know it. But isn't that just the way politics work? You're, uh, you're trying to influence. You're trying to maneuver it in a way that, I mean, again, nothing of this is done in secret or in hiding. You're trying to maneuver it in the way that you think that people should be uh, pro-Israel. So you're giving money to their campaign. I mean, again, this is, is there a difference between other organizations that are doing the same? Look, the issue here, and it started a few months ago, and I think this is something to note. And you said, you're saying, and I think you're correct in saying, if you intervene in the internal politics of the United States, now, why did this whole thing blow up in the first place? Why were J Street uh, uh, so upset and, and the Democratic Coalition Democratic Council of America, because they said, wait a minute, in these lists, this list of endorsement that, J, did, that APEC just put out, right, the 300 and something uh, Republicans and, and Democrats that they're supporting, there are also Republicans that didn't certify the elections. And how, and if you're, and what APEC is saying, wait a minute, but these people support Israel, obviously it's a problem, but they support Israel and we can't not work with all the Republicans who didn't certify the elections because that means we're not working with the Republican leadership in Congress. Whereas the Democrats are saying, but wait a minute, the American, the state of the American democracy is maybe more important or comes before even the relationship with Israel because it, <laughs> the most important thing is American democracy. So that is where it stands. And I think you have very good arguments uh, on both sides of this of this uh, discussion. It's a very good point um, about that last one. Um, but also, actually, yes, I mean, the lobbying organizations do lobbying. APAC before had managed to uh, cast themselves as somehow a, a, a body that had friends on all sides, Democrats, right. Republicans, etc. Now it's getting right into the fight. 
I suppose what, but I think you make a good point about the principle that look, J Street do it themselves. Yep. They back candidates. So what's the difference? I suppose, first of all, APAC is obviously so much bigger and more True. mighty and wealth, you know, has more resource and more money than J Street. I think it's also a feeling I have, which is somehow trying to hold back the tide. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, the reality is that the in the Democratic Party, particularly, but among younger Americans, more educated Americans, progressives are increasingly critical mm -hmm. of Israel and particularly Israeli governments, the occupation, etc. They are that. And just trying to sort of bombard with dollars to keep them out, $2.7 million to Steve Irwin in just a single congressional primary, right. um, feels to me as if it's trying to say, look, we will somehow hold back this tide by just backing people who are, no, are not part of this newer, younger progressive wave, rather than actually tackling why is it that younger progressive Americans don't uh, identify with Israel anymore. So in a way, it goes back to what we talked about with the funeral. You know, rather than the energy being, you know what, let's avoid things like that happening, the energy goes into, can we just use our muscle to keep out the tide of, in a way, of history, which is coming this way? So, Jonathan, do you want to set us up Jeopardy style? You'll need I Will Take Famous Jews for 400. <laughs> this actress is also a game show host, a neuroscientist. Her first directorial debut, the film How They Made Us, is out now. She's a great, great, great niece, I believe, of Chaim Nachman Bialik. I gave you all the clues, Jonathan. Who is Mayim Bialik? Very good. Who is Mayim Bialik? There we the are, 400. <laughs> we are so, so privileged to talk to you today, Mayim. Thank you so much for coming on Unholy. Thank you. I'm surprised, like, maybe it could have been a daily double, maybe next time. <laughs> I don't want to give him too much money. He, he does, you know, silly stuff with it. I, I think it's okay. $400 for him is fine. Um, wow, we have so many things to talk about um, today. And... Um, I think I, I, I'll probably, you know, I should open up with your your film, which is really your directorial debut, and you it's called As They Made Us. You wrote this um, after your father's death. It's about a family indeed uh, coping with with a father's uh, decline, and the daughter has to basically deal with all this. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how this came about and how much of a, of a passion project this is for you? And again, the first time that you're writing and directing, this is really a first for you. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've, I've written. Um... I've written other things, but never wrote a screenplay. And um, my my father, Zichron Alevracha, he passed away. It was just seven years ago. He died on Pesach, actually. And um, I, I followed the very kind of structured year of mourning that traditional Judaism, you know, has been doing for a few thousand years. Um, <laughs> and... I um, found that year very cathartic, you know, all the things. Um, and it was actually after my year lifted that I started feeling a need to write things down. And, you know, long story short, that's what I started doing. I wrote first kind of images and a lot of music was coming to me. And it's not like it was like memories I didn't have. It was just things started coming together with visual components that um, I started writing down. And I originally wrote in prose and then um, showed it to someone very close to me. And he suggested that I turn it into a script, which I had never, I literally, I didn't even own the program, you know, called Final Draft, that you actually write scripts and I'd never written a script. 
So what I did is I, I wrote and a lot of it, yes, is true. And much of it is not as well. There are things that didn't happen, which means it's not an autobiography. It's not a memoir. Um, but I, um, I got this unbelievable cast who really loved this script and wanted to be in it. So Dustin Hoffman and Candace Bergen play the parents. Um, Diana Agron, um, many people know her from Glee and also Shiva Baby. Um, and Simon Helberg from The Big Bang Theory. He is in it and it's this family, exactly like you said. Um, and there's a lot of flashbacks and kind of this notion that the things that happen to us stay with us, even if they're not in our kind of conscious memory. Um, it's a very visually kind of specific film and it's a very musically specific film. And it follows this woman who's in kind of that sandwich generation of, uh, you know, caring for her own children and also her parents uh, as they become quirkier and um, in many ways more difficult as they get older. And it, it is a Jewish film, meaning it's a family. It's a family that happens to be Jewish, but I didn't set out to make a Jewish movie. I did use a lot of the things um, from my life. Uh, and put them in the movie again, not to make any sort of particular statement, uh, but that's just, that's the family that I wanted to show. And um, in particular, the, the Jewish traditions surrounding mourning are, um, I found very uplifting and also very visually interesting to shoot. And so um, that is as they made us and you can get it on like Amazon prime, or you can get it um, on like iTunes. Um, it was in some theaters uh, here, but it's a small film, and uh, and that is sort of the story with that movie. With, with the um, the year of mourning, I, I'm very struck by what you say about that. I, I, I've been through that myself uh, more than once, and the there is something creative about the process, and I don't quite know what it is. But you're not the only person who has been found that a creative project has come out of the end of going through that. And I think of Leon Wieseltier's book Kaddish, but there are other examples, right. and. I mean, my own feeling is it's something that Jews really get right that year of mourning. It's psychologically <laughs> very kind of insightful, but not just the year, the shiver, everything. But tell you tell us what it was about that year that, that you've put into the film and that sparked you creatively, because I find that very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, here, here's the thing, like staying Kaddish for a year is, is not for everyone. And if you want to go to Minyan every day, there are certain denominations of Judaism that make it very clear that it's not for everyone. <laughs> so I also... Meaning not for women, you mean? I was able to recite Kaddish everywhere that I traveled. Um, I, I was in many places around this country and um, also in Israel. So um, the best way to know that you can recite Kaddish is to go to an Orthodox minion because they have them every day. So... Um, I mainly said Kaddish in community in many communities that wouldn't count me. And so it was a fascinating year as a woman also to experience that. And many people, especially people who were kind of surprised by the intensity of the film, because it is, it's very emotional. It's a very raw um, set of performances. They asked if it was cathartic making the movie. And I said, no, the catharsis came before. That's what allowed me to make the movie was, um, Traditional Judaism is not for everyone and structured for me, I, I happen to resonate a lot with halachic Judaism. And um, that year, I can't say that I, I think everyone should say Kaddish for a year because it makes you creative. What it does is it forces you to be with yourself in ways that you never have been before in a world without the person you're mourning. So I had a, a really, really sometimes frustrating, sometimes anger producing, sometimes beautiful, deeply sad experience in that year. 
But what I was doing was I was learning something new in honor of a person who died. It's like life is for the living, right? And that's a huge component of the Jewish experience is we're very much about what happens, what we eat, how we act, how we speak, how we grieve. Um, and yes, for all the things that a lot of people feel Judaism gets wrong, and I got a couple on my list, uh, we really, <laughs> we know how to do death and mourning. We figured it out, like make you sit in one place. Don't let you be alone. Walk around the block when the first week is over, you know, mark the first month and then just do not run from your feelings. So for me, what happened when I couldn't run is that I started looking. And for me, what came was, again, like an emotional catharsis that for me led to wanting to kind of put it down on paper. But I think that process can be, you know, fulfilling even if you don't write a screenplay. <laughs> I completely agree. You know, it's interesting. I hear you, I heard you talk about the film and you always say, I wrote this and I waited for a real screenwriter to come along. And then they told me that's okay. And then I waited for a real director to come along and I realized I can do it. And it, it's so interesting because you, you at the same time wrote a book that kind of it really empowers girls and young women. It's called Girling Up, How to Be Strong and Smart and Spectacular. And I wondered how that works together. That feeling of, on the one hand, not feeling good enough to do this, uh, and then feel, saying to girls and to young women, you know, you have to feel good enough to do this. It's, um, it's, an interesting... it, it's a really interesting question. I, I haven't been asked that, you know, and the the answer is I, you know, when I wrote Girling Up, I also wrote Boying Up, which is um, that came after That's that. That's for Jonathan. The Girling Up is That's for right. It's so for the boys. Absolutely. Well, or right. for any female person who wants to, you know, maybe better understand what, <laughs> what is going on in there. Um, but, you know, for me, I wrote the book that didn't exist when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I was raised by two feminists, you know, both my parents were progressive. They were civil rights activists. Like I was raised by two feminists who did the best they could from being born in World War II, you know, as the, the black sheep of their family in being liberals who, you know, were tear gassed at Washington, you know, fighting for all the things. So for me, you know, my personality is such that um, the culture I was raised in and, and what I'm like, I, I do have a very hard time still as a woman asserting myself. You know, I one of the things I noticed actually while working on this film was how much I used the phrase I think in an email when I actually didn't think it was what I knew. So instead of <laughs> I think I'd like to start at 6 a.m. tomorrow, what I meant was I'd like to start at 6 a.m. <laughs> that sounds Maybe very familiar. That sounds I think very you might familiar be secretly, to me. You might be secretly British, though, because <laughs> because I begin every your need will testify that I say, I wonder if. Well, which that's. Is, I think that's, you know, that 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 is definitely a colloquialism um, from <laughs> from a culture that it's true is is not mine. But um, I think for for a lot of I, I had the experience, I think that a lot of women have. And it was actually my ex-husband who, when I said, like, I don't know if I can make this movie, I never done. He said, if you were a dude right out of <laughs> film school, you'd be like, I'm gonna make a movie. It's gonna be amazing. <laughs> And I was like, you know what? You're probably right. Um, and I also think it's okay for there to be lots of different kinds of women, just like there are lots of different kinds of men. Um, and that is something I still struggle with. Um, and, you know, I'm raising two boys, but, you know, I believe that we should all raise feminists in terms of people who understand the importance of the emphasis of the special qualities that women have while not degrading those that men have um, and seeking for, you know, um, equal representation and yes, the right to your body and your privacy as well while we're at it. <laughs> I mean, a lot of those views, you obviously com completely channel them your own way, but they would not be, you know, unpopular 
among liberal Hollywood types. And yet there are some views you offer and express which are not immediate sort of crowd pleasers, I would guess, in movie making circles. And I'm thinking of the fact you do, you're out there with the Z word or Z word, you say you're a Zionist, you use that word. You know, a lot of people will think that's a word that you kind of, people steer clear of, very often misunderstood. You say it, you use it. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I went to UCLA. I went to a a very fine public university. And, uh, you know, I was there at the time when affirmative action wasn't a dirty phrase, meaning that was seen as an an empowering thing that many um, universities were doing. Obviously, the climate has shifted, but, you know, it was the beginnings of, um, you know, swastikas being chalked. Um, outside of Jewish events. It was the beginning of Zionism is racist. I mean, we we had never heard those things, you know, in the early 90s and mid 90s on a campus like that. And so, you know, I also was kind of raised in a liberal progressive academic environment where I absolutely believe in free speech. I absolutely believe in healthy conversation about the policies of all sorts of governments, including that of Israel, which I consider, you know, my historic and cultural and religious and spiritual homeland. We now see that that has grown into a much, 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 much larger movement, uh, especially on on campuses. And one of the things that is the most disturbing to me, which I just it's so funny, my family in Israel is like, we're so proud of you. I refuse to think of the word Zionist or Zionism as a bad word. I just I refuse. And I remember when someone there was a, a thing on my Facebook and someone said, did you know she's a Zionist? And it was as if the word was. God forbid, fascist or God forbid, Nazi. I mean, this is the other conversations around that. And um, the reason that I chose to kind of speak out more about it is that many of my young fans from, I have fans, you know, all over the world from many places where they know very little about, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. People started coming to my defense and saying, Mayim's not a Zionist. She's such a nice person. She would never be a Zionist. And that's when I realized, oh, no. Oh, we don't. We This is just a definitional problem. So I literally just started defining what Zionism is because I saw that people literally didn't even know what it meant. So, um, yeah, it's not a popular place to be. But like I said, to me, it's not I, I refuse to call to think of that as a bad word. I, it's just it's not. There are many people who are Zionists who do bad things. There are also many people who are socialists and liberals and Republicans who do bad things like I. the word in and of itself is is the right to an autonomous and safe and free country. That's what it was made for. That is my home. That's like that. That's what it is. That's what Zionism is. Talk to us a little bit more about you say that is my home. Ex- explain that a little bit more to us. How, how does that feel? Um, with you? How does that resonate with you? You know, it's a very funny identity. You know, I, I, I get very emotional about it because, you know, I I didn't go to Israel till I was 16 years old. I didn't meet most of my family in Israel until I was 16. And, you know, back then it was like, we could maybe afford like a phone call a month. So my mother could hear her sister's voice, you know, like it was so different to grow up across the world from family without zoom and without phones and computers and, you know, all those things. So um, I did, I had a a really transformative experience in Israel for the first time. My soundtrack, if anyone's wondering was U2's rattle and hum, which is a phenomenal Mm -hmm. album and forever, you know, I remember it was raining and it was Hanukkah at the hotel. Like the first time I went to the hotel and it was uh, unbelievable. Like I had that experience with my family and like, you know, there's places I've never been cause I didn't go on Ulpan or I didn't go on birthright. Like I've never been to the Galil, you know, like there's things that I like 
want to hmm. do. Um, but I did like all the highlights of like Yerushalayim and I've been to, you know, a lot and I've done Tel Aviv and, you know, most of those parts of the country and I have been to Haifa. And then I went back every, about every year, year and a half, every two years. And the climate that we live in now, you know, without sounding like a paranoid Jew, it doesn't feel good. I have many friends who've stopped wearing a yarmulke since Trump, and that's very painful. It's scary in the city I live in. There have been attacks at places that I go. And, you know, I grew up with places that I went in Israel being bombed. So it's like, it's terrible. (laughs) It's, it's terrible to feel that. And um, I've raised my children to know that there, there is a place. There's a place that that is ours and that we can have citizenship there. If we pay our taxes, we can have citizenship there. And that is our home. That's the place where we go. And there are um, many problems with a lot of the policies of the state of Israel, just like there are many problems with the policies of the state of the country that took my family in when there was nowhere else to go. Um, and that is the place where a large portion of my family has Um, They've been pioneers. They have made the desert bloom themselves with their hands. And um, I don't agree with all the places that my family lives, but that's our home. That's where we go. That's where we know our safety is. That's um, what that means. And but we do all agree that that Israel is home. (laughs) I mean, you saying Israel is home. I just wonder, I mean, this seriously, people who watch Jeopardy, and you know that's a huge part of America's national life. You've you've got a place there that makes you a kind of national treasure, and yet you're saying your home is mm-hmm. somewhere else, not America. And you didn't qualify particularly. You said that's my home, and that mean I'm 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 very struck by that. No, and and I think also um, I'm I'm also a a diehard patriot. My grandparents showed up on the shores of Manhattan with nothing. <laughs> And this country took them in. Country had a lot of complexity around how it took people in as well. But the, this is where they came. They didn't speak English. And my grand, my mother's parents actually never really commanded the English language. Um, you, you know, they came to a place that had a dozen newspapers in Yiddish. Like this was, that, you know, that's, that is also my home, you know. And I, I hate to say that the place where you go when you're scared is your home. But for me, it's it's not just that, you know, I'm a, I love America in all its complexity because it is the place that saved, that saved us, saved my family. It's a very Jewish concept to be able to hold two things in one place mm-hmm. and um, meaning one to have two homes in your heart. I- exactly. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I'm a, a product of like the Soloveitchik kind of line of modern orthodoxy of like, if you're not feeling tension, you're probably not thinking hard enough. Right. Like, <laughs> This is our existence as Jews. Like we wander, we wander and we're displaced and we blend in, but also we don't. And it's okay. We can both be universalists and we can be very, 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 very specific. <laughs> is it, has it become harder for you to sort of defend that I'm a staunch Zionist position? Like, over of course, the like the news doesn't look so good. Yeah, we know that. <laughs> Israel needs a new publicist. My publicist is terrific. You know, maybe like the whole country could use a little boost. Um, um, Yes, there are, you know, I mean, this is what it's like to be in the diaspora. Like we're far. And I also feel like, you know, for people who either have never been there or who have never spent an extended period of time there or who have never, um, you know, chosen to pioneer um, a life there, it's very easy to sit in judgment and know what it feels like. 
Um, but I've I've spent extensive periods of time there. I've gone when there's bombings. I've gone when there aren't. I've gone before the Intifada, the second Intifada. I, you know, I've done I, I've done all the things that mm-hmm. um, that I've been able to. And there are many places in the world where I'm not welcome because I go to Israel, and that's devastating to me. Um, a lot of people don't know that to be a public Jewish person is a very interesting position to be in. But like I said, I've learned pretty quickly that a lot of people like they they don't want to talk. <laughs> They don't want to know. They don't want to hear. They they don't like Israel and they don't like Jews. So I, I want to I want to ask something about your career. We've been talking about Israel and Judaism, and I, I want to say this because it really isn't a standard Hollywood career if such a thing exists, right? I mean, you started as a child star, Blossom Beaches. You took a twelve year hiatus, got a PhD in neuroscience, and then had sort two of children. had two children. Another important thing in a biography for sure. Um, and then sort of catapulted back to fame as Amy Farrah Fowler in, uh, in, in, in The Big Bang Theory. I mean, huge back. It's a huge start of success. This is really an unusual route, isn't it, to, to take? Oh, yeah. This is not. I mean, this and also it wasn't planned that way. I just this is like putting one foot in front of the other and seeing what happens in life. Yeah. You know, the reason I returned to acting after 12 years and, you know, I'm sure you'll both laugh at this. Like I ran out of health insurance because being a graduate student, they give you like a year and then it's like, okay, good luck in the universe, you know, (laughs) finding health insurance. So I literally went back to acting because acting was a safe place to go back to. Well, I wasn't planning on being a regular on a TV show. I never thought that would happen. I was teaching neuroscience for five years after I got my degree. I taught Hebrew. I taught piano. I was like teaching with a baby strap to my chest. My hair was down to my tush. Like I was like a hippie chick. I was not, (laughs) you know, and I started auditioning literally just to, you know, try and get just like a couple even small jobs to try and start getting, you know, you get like credits towards insurance when you're an actor. That's how our union works. Um, I had never seen the Big Bang Theory. I thought it was a game show. I didn't know that I was going to be a regular on a TV show. So, you know, all these things like just kind of, you know, they happen. And obviously neuroscience was a huge commitment. It was 12 years of my life. And, you know, having my first son in grad school and my sec, I took my doctoral hood pregnant and had him after getting my degree. So, um, definitely not, you know, a straight Derek, but that's just, you know, everybody's got theirs and that's mine, you know. Do you miss the neuroscience? Uh, I, I miss being in an, in an academic environment. Yes. Um, you're telling me Jeopardy is not an academic environment? Um, it, is, it's, well, that's the thing. It, it's a very intellectual. No, it's a very intellectually stimulating environment, but being a scientist with a specialization means you're studying, you know, all things around your specialty. And I had a, an incredible year of seminars in the department of neuroendocrinology, where we studied gender and sexuality long before anybody was talking about it in the public media, because it's been part of the scientific literature for quite some time. So I miss that, you know, I miss being around those kinds of conversations. Um, And yeah, it's very different being in front of the camera, like, you know, now, people care what my hair looks like, whereas in grad school, nobody cares. <laughs> I read somewhere, by the way, that you started the career, the Hollywood career, as your father took a picture of you, sent it to agents and said, this kid looks like Barbara Streisand. And it was my parents. Letter. Yeah, my that's mom. That's true. That's, that's true. I, I have a copy of the letter still. They, 
typed it on a very fancy, those like electric typewriters. Remember when those came out and we couldn't believe that, you know, it could do that. Yeah. My mom typed a letter. My dad just took a picture of me and they said, this is who she looks like. And I like vaguely knew who those people were. I was like, oh, other Jewish people. Cause I, nobody else looked like me on television in uh, 1986. Like this was not, this is kind of what I looked like just on a smaller body. Um, so yeah, that was how I, I, I watched Blossom. I remember this. I mean, yeah, I was 14 when Blossom came out. I was 14 to 19. And that's, it's, it's funny that you say no one else looks like, looked like that. Blossom was supposed to be about a boy. We had to fight to do a show about a girl. There wasn't a primetime show about a girl at that time. And nobody thought people would watch. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't have success in commercials, which is what most kids do because the, they didn't, you know, like ethnic was not what they cast for. You know, the, the look was what they called all American, which is like a joke now because I went to public school in Los Angeles. Like most people didn't, like most people were, you know, I grew up with, with black kids, with Asian kids, with, with kids who had just emigrated from Mexico and Central America. Like what's all American, you know? We're talking among, your- among, among Jews, like everybody's <laughs> like, oh yeah, she looks like half the people in my family. Like, cause I'm, you know, I'm Polish and Hungarian and Ukrainian. So like just put it all together and we're bound to look alike at some point. <laughs> me and most Jews. This looks like a Shabbat dinner to me. Like the three That's of us, right. just you. saying. Um, but there's, I, look, you're a serious person and neuroscience and <laughs> no, there's something I need you to solve for me because I've heard you talk uh, quite extensively. Obviously the big bang theory is just a huge show. And you kind of think, I, I, I remember seeing the beginning of thinking it's so funny, but then they'll run out of geek jokes after one season. Uh, no, they didn't. They never did. Um, but I, I remember you talking about the very, um, sort of at length, the difference between what a nerd and a geek is. And I'm not, you know, I have to have your thinking on this because um, Jonathan Friedland on the one hand doesn't read science fiction or fantasy at all. Okay. Like you say Lord of the Rings to him. He thinks it's a jewelry store. On the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, Oxford wrote 12 books. Look at the size of his library. Could you just solve this to be a nerd? Not look a at the size of his glasses. He's a, he's a nerd. So he's nerd. Not a okay. So nerd. Okay. Got it. Okay. Just you, wanted you to make sure nerd, I need an expert. Yeah, you can be a nerd and a geek if you'd like to be. Okay. You're neat. Do you think step forward, you're neat, Levy? Do you think for the double title? Because <laughs> you, because you're neat okay. is a science fiction. I I would say obsessive and true, true and true. fantasy and have like done like three. You how many degrees had you done by the time you were twenty five? I think three, four. four. I think you you I'm get the, sure you get both. I get she both. Gets it's nerd like and geek. Double Jeopardy! Yay! Okay, I get nerd both. Nerd and happy. geek. Oh. I'm not sure I like where this turned out. I was going to make You're fun of you. You're the one who opened the I conversation. I know, it's my fault. It's my fault. You should never do that. Total nerd and total geek. Um, whereas you, Mayim, I think what? Are we going going with geek and nerd both, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. She's a neuroscientist. I mean, come yeah, on. So that, that just comes that nails with- geek. No, so the, he didn't get it. We just went through it, Jonathan, because he doesn't get it. So he, the nerd is... The, the nerd part is usually kind of more like the academic, like the brainy, the cerebral, like often kind of serious. Like it has nothing to do with kind of cultural uh. stuff. Whereas geek, you'll usually find, I don't like to call them obsessions just because I'm a scientist. There are often fixations or strong interests in things like Star Wars or Star Trek or that kind of geek culture. Many people are geeks and they're not nerds, meaning they love fantasy or sci-fi and stuff like that, but they have no interest in kind of like academically being, they wouldn't want to have a library. It wouldn't occur to them. Right. I see you have unpacked it for me very, very powerfully (laughs) there. I do now feel um, educated on that point. 
Um, and you're neat. You definitely still are both. Um, the film is uh, available on Amazon Prime and other places, and it's called As They Made Us. It is the direct directorial. How do you say that? It's the first film directed by our very special guest, Mayim Bialik. Thank you so much for being on Unholy. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure, Mayim. Thank you. Really a pleasure to talk to you both. So I don't know. I think we needed Mayim Bialik uh, and her authority to finally settle this matter that Jonathan Friedland is indeed a nerd. I mean, because yeah. if anyone didn't think that before, now we know. It is almost like a sort of halachic ruling, isn't it? It's, it's like the Beth Din have spoken. The Beth Din have ruled that that is, I should get it on a T-shirt. Maya and Bialik says, I'm a nerd. But I think I'll get it for you, Jonathan. I think you've got both. I mean, you've got the T-shirt with nerd on one side and geek on the other. Wow, right? that was just turning it on on me. I mean, come on, that was not a friendly thing to do. I mean, it was, the whole thing was to talk against you. How did that happen to me? I yeah, could I just I set that stage coming, for that. Though. I think you knew it was coming. And... Um, we have uh, Chutzpah and Mensch Awards to give out, and I think it's for you to step forward first. With yes, your well, I was, uh, you know, it's always a, a crowded field on the Chutzpah department. I was thinking for a minute about the U.S. Congress uh, dedicating its, uh, you know, time this week to discuss UFOs as if there are no other problems in the world. I mean, I, I assume that if there's an intelligent uh, life form anywhere else, and there has to be because this can't be the best, right, that the universe can offer, that's fine. Then let us know. And if not, like, don't waste our time. There are other problems to deal with. But no, I instead will give the Chutzpah Award of the Week, uh, beginning with Israeli politics and ending with Israeli politics, to uh, the Likud. Uh, because this week, the Bennett government proposed a law that gave uh, demobilized soldiers financial assistance for their studies after uh, they finished their military service. It seems like a law that's pretty easy to rally around. Uh, but, of course, you know, uh, the Likud, uh, which usually likes to present itself as a defender of uh, these uh, soldiers, uh, Oppose the law. It's not the contents or the essence, but of course, the fact that it's coming from the Bennett government and they didn't want to give them this uh, win. Netanyahu himself reportedly said that it was more important to for the bill, bill not to pass and to show that the Bennett government is weak. So other things this week have obviously indicated that the Bennett government is weak. By the way, there's a lot of criticism against the Likud over this, and they said they'll think we think it. But right now, uh, this is the situation over this uh, bill. So that is my chutzpah award for the week. Uh, I think it's a worthy winner. I think it's a worthy winner, edging ahead some stiff competition, as you said. Um, for Mensch, I thought we would uh, hand the award to friend of the podcast. Sasha Baron Cohen, who, as you know, um, I've known a long time, but he has a new departure um, because he is going to be the voice of a new animated special made by HBO Max called Helm, the smartest place on earth. <laughs> um, people uh, who are steeped in Yiddish culture will know that Helm is the imagined village of fools. It's the butt of so many great old Yiddish stories and jokes and fables, this imaginary land where everyone in it is an idiot. And, you know, from the <laughs> rabbi onwards, they're all idiotic and they, uh, they're they almost like people out of a Larson cartoon, you know, pressing the door that says, pull, you know. Um, they are like that a little bit, solving, um, you know, whatever problem they have. If they do solve it, they solve it in the most convoluted and roundabout way. Anyway, it's going to get the on-screen treatment. It's going to be a cartoon. It's got a whole lot of uh, Hollywood A-listers creatively behind it as writers and so on. But the voice that you will hear uh, will be Sasha Baron Cohen. I think it's perfect casting. I particularly like that they're aimed, it's going to be a real cartoon in the sense I think it is going to be aimed towards 
children, uh, which is good because he is going to therefore bring Helm uh, into a new form, uh, but also to a new generation. I love Helm stories. Um, big fan of Sasha, so I think the, he gets our Mensch Award uh, for doing this. Yes, remember he actually gave out a Mensch Award at the beginning of the year, so I think this is a nice... Uh Nice Nicely cyclical and circular. So. I, I agree. So. so we will uh, wind up our uh, discussion and say our thank yous to Rom uh, Atik, Omer Primat, Gaia Glazer, and Irad Eshel for original music. And if you've enjoyed this, do the usual rate, review, and generally shout from the rooftops about Unholy. We do appreciate it. I will see you next week, Yoni. Yes, and please don't uh, forget that you are a nerd and we have that on every... It's on uh, tape. Now. It is on tape in a few versions. Have a good week. Bye-bye. <laughs>